Thank you, as always, for listening. In this episode, we've got something really special, really excited about this. Chris and I interview Nathan Dowdell, who is the system designer at Modifius for 2Die20. He was kind enough to give us some of his time to talk about 2Die20 and some of the decisions that he's made and Modifius has made for the various 2Die20 games out there. We also talked about the upcoming SRD a little bit and some other things related to gaming in general. Thanks for listening to Fluff and Crunch, where we talk about the connection and sometimes disconnect between system, setting, and story in tabletop RPGs. stumble over everything and then I edit it out. That's why I let you go first. Thank you. You let me wander out in the minefield. You're such a gentleman. All right, I'll keep that. That's good. All right. So we are back again and uh, we have actually this is a really special episode that I've been I've been looking forward to it. And since we we organized it, but we're going to start it out as normal. That is what gaming have we done? But we're adding 50% more gamer into this uh, this brief piece here. So um, we're here with Nathan Dowdell of Modifius. Um, we're going to talk to him about some of the meat and potatoes and the core of the 2Die20 system. And uh, But we'll, let's start off with what our gaming has been like over the last week or so. Uh, Nathan, I'll let you start. What kind of gaming have you done in the last week? The last fortnight or so, um, my main away from work game uh, is a regular um, fortnightly uh, 140,000 Wrath and Glory campaign. Ooh. Um, Partly nodding to my uh, my roots as a gamer because I started out playing 40k many many moons ago. Working on 40k RPGs was my first job in the RPG industry, and the designer of the current 40k RPG, Wrath and Glory, um, he was the man that gave, that gave me my first job in the RPG industry, Ross Watson. So yeah, it all ties back to the to the work eventually, but uh, it's an ongoing campaign and it's been working. It's been nice to get back to that after the the large interruption from the <laughs> the from thing the event. Yeah. <laughs> Beyond that, a few bits and pieces of work gaming, which is slightly different. Um, a, a session of Star Trek Adventures to um, introduce a few of my colleagues to the two D twenty system, so that they can um, uh, so that they can provide me some more support on. Uh, Development, the development side of things. They, you know, this is for colleagues that normally work on miniatures games and board games, trying to expand their uh, their fields of expertise. Interesting. Um, and some playtesting for a game that we have not yet announced. Ooh. No truth serum in in in, uh, in in use here, so we're not going to try to pry that out of you. <laughs> How about you, Chris? What have you been up to the last week or so? Uh, I've ha- I've actually managed another session of my Curse of Strad game, which is. At this point, it's taking so. I mean, like we we're rushing it anyway. I reckon I can finish it in three more. So when people are like, it takes six months to play. I reckon we'll have done it in eight sessions, maybe. But yeah, it's just we're finding it so hard to meet up and schedule at the moment. So, but yeah, I managed a, a fifth session. So, so that's good. We're getting there. It's good fun. Excellent. But yeah, we're near. I think we're nearer to the end now than the start, uh, which is good because I'm already trying to think about what I'm going to do next. How about you? Uh, well, this last weekend, 
Oh, yeah. Weekend before last, we finished the Octoon Cthulhu adventure. And actually, we've like our season of Octoon Cthulhu, we're, uh, we're done with. We, Nathan, we had run through most of the, um, the downloadable PDF adventures mm. that Modiphius put out. And so they blew up the Zeppelin. Uh, they crashed it into the ruined castle in Romania and just made it utter mess of, of, of things. That was weekend before last. But this last weekend, we, we decided we're going to take two die 20 and beat on it to make it fit Knights Black Agents in place of Gumshoe. Um, because there are things I don't like about Gumshoe. And uh, we're going to run the Dracula dossier but with two die 20 sitting underneath the mm. whole thing. So I have a pile of, I have Dune, I have Octoon Cthulhu. I have all these different ideas of how I'm going to like file down the, file off the serial numbers and smush pieces together and, and things like that. But we, we ran that. It wasn't even, I, I wouldn't even call it like an alpha version of our hack. It was like an alpha version. It was so underdeveloped, but it worked. And so we, I back to the drawing board for, uh, for working on ideas of how to, how to serve the tropes in that setting through um, two die 20 mechanics. So that's what we did. So actually hmm. I think we have the right person to maybe bounce some ideas off of here, <laughs> but we'll see. Um, but so Nathan, you are, you, you work at, at Modiphius. Um, what is your title and what, what exactly does that, what do you do there? Cause I think this is, this I is really operative to this episode. The, I am the 2d 20 system. Uh, designer and lead developer essentially whenever a new rpg comes along that's going to be using the 2d20 system um at least from within modifius i'm the person that figures out how we build that game how we take the 2d20 system apart and rebuild it to suit that particular uh setting that particular genre the styles of play that we want to encourage with that game the core rules of essentially of each uh, version of 2d20 barring uh, only one or two have essentially been my handiwork, at least after the uh, the initial design was finished with um, Mutant Chronicles 3rd Edition, um, which was eight years ago now, which, uh, which had been designed uh, partly by Chris Birch and um, a couple of other of my colleagues and with the, uh, the addition of uh, Jay Little um, partway through development, who... Um, fleshed out a lot of the concepts and expanded from the original proof of concept. I came along a little while after that and kind of built on his work and then took over as subject matter expert once he went off to go and do other projects. Well, we thank you for your handiwork because we really like the system a lot. Yeah, we do. Um, we talked about this in a, in a, we've talked about this in a number of episodes, but, but um, it's amazing how flexible a core mechanic is or this is um and is expressed and has so many additional things built onto it and, and teased out of it that fit such radically different properties um and it, it, we often compare it to like the d20 of explosion of 20 years ago where everything had levels and everything had you know it, it was it was the same system and it was setting squeezed into the system rather than the system shaped to fit the needs of the setting. And you guys have done the latter really, really well, we believe, um, instead so of just in, like hammering everything into a level <laughs> box. In that regard, I actually take a lot, of, personally, I take a lot of inspiration on that 
approach from um, the way CanBanks and a few others approached uh, what was Cortex Plus and what's become Cortex Prime yeah. um, these days with the um, the Smallville Leverage and Marvel Heroic RPGs from um, about a decade ago. Those were very much those very much uh, informed the way that I started to approach uh, development for 2D20. That idea of yeah, the underlying mechanics and the, the mechanisms and the, the, the basic system can be the same, mm-hmm. but if you change the context of it and if you rearrange the the components that interconnect those elements you can create some very different results without completely building a new system every time. Yeah, um, I think but you still sorry. want to build something distinctive each time. Yeah. Yeah, because Cortex is something we've talked well, we did a review of it again recently because obviously before I'd got onto 2D20, Cortex was the thing I was really into. But I think actually you guys do a much better job because Cortex, I, to me, it was always on the sort of what we call the sort of the, our narrative fluffy end of it. And they never moved. Like uh, Marvel Heroic was maybe the furthest they moved from that. But I mean, they, like you said, they all did different things. Like Smallville had its relationship things and, and Leverage was super quick and, and had the roles and stuff. But I think you guys have got a much bigger gap between sort of what is at one end and what's another. And you, you, we have been really impressed like how every time something new comes out, it's... You know, you have literally gone, right, well, we're going to go, this is, we want June to be like this. So June is like this. And then you're acting a Thulu, well, we want it to be more like this. So it, and it changed. I think there's a much bigger variety of the games you've churned out. Whereas although those Cortex Prime games were different, um, I don't think they, they were as far removed, maybe in play. Yeah. But in terms of the rules, I don't think they were as far removed as some of the things you guys have done, but yeah, it was a good touchdown. Cause we, we've, it's funny that, cause we've talked about that. We've never at any point considered that maybe you guys had thought of doing that. We've kind of go, look, Cortex Prime did this and now Modiphius does it as well. Um, it's probably because we're like big fans of Modiphius and 2D20 and we're not quite such big fans of, of Cortex. Sorry, Cam. So using that, along that that idea of like fitting a, 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 a property, like connecting a property and, and a set of mechanics and like a mindset for for developing that connection and, and, and making it work, um, so we were thinking using Star Trek Adventures that I've run and played a bunch uh, and Conan, which I've run a good amount as examples, like those those are the two bookends. Um, what, what what kind of process do you go through in trying to dis- or determining how am I going to differentiate? Like when you took the core of 2 Die 20, you said, wow, we've got Star Trek. That's a big deal. Obviously, I would assume a, a big, probably a sense of burden too. like I better do this right. Um, oh, oh, and then yeah. Conan, with so much, I, I really appreciate the fact that you guys went to the Howard's canon and not the movies, and and being and really demonstrating a desire to stay in keeping with the spirit of those those stories. How do you dial the system up, down, sideways? What did you go through to, to to determine those two very different expressions of two die twenty? The the first step really is to try and get a sense of what what you want the end result to look like. Uh, yeah, have a have a sense of who the player characters are and what the kinds of things they're going to be doing are going to be and what should happen to them in the meantime. Now, Conan was is very much one of the, like, the first wave of 2D20 games. They're all pretty Mutant Chronicles Infinity and Conan were all built off of pretty much the same engine with 
Um, some relatively minor adjustments here and there. Conan, we made some adjustments to suit um, the more uh, melee-focused styles of combat um, and introduced things like cavalry uh, and mechanics and things like that and other, uh, other elements to suit the, the, fan, the pulp fantasy adventure side of things. Um, that hadn't really been present in Mutant Chronicles and Infinity that had been worked on just before it. Uh, but it was still basically 2D20 as we'd already worked on it. Star Trek Adventures were, was basically the first 2D20 game where I was given license to just go to town and, and figure out how to do it. Yeah, how to do it from the ground up. Um, I was fortunate enough to be given the the opportunity to just dive in and lead and run development as i saw fit um probably because other people saw that they might well get you know bitten if they got too close to to interfering uh, i've been a star trek fan for basically since the early 90s and had grown up with it and so i wasn't going to let anybody else get in the way of making the star trek game that i wanted to make and a lot of the decisions of how do I how do we take 2D20, which is already established as quite a pulpy, action-heavy RPG, and how do we change that and rebuild it to suit something that, while not lacking in action, um, has different emphasis, emphases, has different outcomes expected, and a much more peaceful desired end, out, end result. And it was things like... Um, when we do get into combat, how quickly should combatants be taken out of the fight? And looking at Star Trek, it was, oh, actually fairly quickly, because if you get hit by a phaser in Star Trek, a phaser or a disruptor, you're pretty much gone. You're unconscious, you're down on the floor, or you're disintegrated. If you get hit with an unarmed attack, and it, a lot of the time, people get hit once and they go down. People don't stagger on through lingering wounds unless they're significant player characters, significant notable characters. And so that required a number of changes and a number of iterations to rebuild from what we had with Conan, which was much more bloody and visceral. But other parts of it was were more matters of emphasis more than um, rebuilding the system. Uh, ideas like spending momentum to ask questions from the GM or the assistance rules. Those rules existed fairly early on. A, a, almost a prototypical form of them is way back in Mutant Chronicles. But it's only in Star Trek Adventures that those elements really shine, uh, really started to shine because they were they tapped into something that was expected of Star Trek. They made the your sensor scanner, your tricorder suite, and something like that. They made them a little bit more impactful and more interesting to play through. Uh, the assistance rules helped work with the idea of the, the bridge crew as a team, rather than as a group of a, a group of eclectic adventurers moving in roughly the same direction. And so it, it's a mixture of okay, what's already what's already present in the system that we just need to point a little bit more towards and what's present in the system that we need to take apart and rebuild to suit a different outcome. And then many weeks of taking things apart, rebuilding, tinkering, and so forth. The playtesting that I mentioned earlier for the game that uh, 
not yet announced is currently in that stage. You know, it, it's fascinating because it, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, it, it sounds like you may have discovered things about 2 die 20 in the making of Star Trek that you didn't realize were there. Like the, the I mean, the assistance rules, it's just like, the, it's, a, it's such a smooth way of how, how, you know, every game's got assistance rules of some sort. I am particularly mm-hmm. fond of the assistance rules in, in this system, but that teamwork dimension of Star Trek is so central to the setting, and you already have this, this very mm-hmm. smooth system by which that's done. So did you, did you experience any of that? Like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize this piece that we already built is going to be so great if we use it in this way or not. Um, I think it was more a case of it was already there, and then finding through playtesting, through my early initial uh, tests and through the open playtest that we had later, um, that when I got was getting feedback in from playtesters, people would point out the assistance rules in ways that they hadn't done with the previous games, despite the same rules being there. It was an element that just worked, and I think. Part of it is that playing Star Trek tends to put people more in a a frame of mind where that where assistance is a bigger deal. It got noticed more because people were approaching it more because people were of a mindset to try and help each other in that way rather than making their own attacks and going off and doing their own uh, their own thing. So it wasn't necessarily there wasn't a, a moment of revelation so much as this is already here and then looking back on it i'm testing and going yeah that works really well in this context so we'll lean a little bit harder in on it why did you guys decide to go because we we look at we usually discuss dune as being like it's the most narrative uh, it's the most abstract of the idea of like asset moving and using assets is and no challenge right. dice is so uh, it, it's it's different in practice but i think it requires a very different mindset as you play the game uh, wrapping your head around that has been harder for me uh, than than the other systems. The other systems, I just the action is a lot more concrete at the table. Mm. Why did you folks decide to go that route with Dune? So it kind of it kind of comes back to that idea of who are the Claire characters and what are they doing. And after extensive reading and research, uh, including uh, slogging my way through that doorstop of a book. Um, which <laughs> I had never done before. Uh, I, I, I was relying on my colleagues with more uh, Dune experience to know that whether or not something fit the Dune uh, style. Wait, wait, you just um, didn't watch the weird David Lynch movie and stop there? Oh, no, I, I've watched that, but I read through the book. I yeah. read through the book with the audiobook in the background as well. Um, just to try and get a sense of the whole thing, I poured through wikis and various dissections of the book and things like that. I did a, f- a fair amount of research uh, just to get a sense of what, not necessarily the story so much as what the universe is like and the kinds of actions that the protagonists or a group of player characters should be engaging in. Where are the interesting parts that players are going to want to do? Uh, players are going to want to do. It was something that we looked at in a similar way with Star Trek, where there's almost two different perspectives that you can take at uh, 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 take at this thing. You've got the the bridge crew, the senior staff are the ones at the top that make all the decisions. And if you want to take a realistic tack to that, then 
you send that lieutenants and ensigns and crewmen on your away missions because the senior staff are too important to send out or you go the narratives route the the, the more dramatic route where the most important people on the ship are also the ones taking the away missions because that means that the people taking making all the decisions are also the people actively doing the the interesting things and dune we approach that and similarly who are the people that make all the decisions because making decisions is a key part of gaming it's no fun if you if you're just following orders if you're just doing what you've been told um but also the people actually doing the things need to be involved too because that's the other half of it if you're just making the decisions and then letting some minion somewhere handle it is that interesting either so we 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 kind of found ourselves needing to cover a lot of ground that where espionage and warfare and intrigue and small scrappy skirmishes and honor duels between two individuals and lots of other different ways to fight and ways to resolve conflicts were needed and we didn't necessarily want to have to write an entirely new subsystem for each of them because that would have taken up three times as much space and probably would have involved a lot of repetition anyway. So the other solution was look at it, you know, look at what defines those conflicts. The conflicts that the player character is going to be involved in, whether they're giving orders from far above or whether they're down and dirty in the, in the trenches themselves and try and distill them down to the bare essential. And the bare essential becomes you are using this, this thing, this object, this asset, to inflict harm or otherwise try to defeat your opponent. The specific form the asset takes depends on the type of conflict that you're engaged in. But fundamentally, whether you're trying to outmaneuver and blackmail an opponent or whether you're trying to stab them and, and pass their shield, there is still some manner of weapon, but there is also, which, which and get, got folded into the concept of assets, and you're still maneuvering and you're still dealing with other people. And fundamentally, all those mechanics can be boiled down into the same thing. That led us down that kind of abstractive route. And as we pushed further and further into June, the, the, the idea of leaning more into who are the characters and why are they doing these things? And that became much more important than the specific minutiae of uh, mustering armies and uh, things like that. Everything should serve the primary question of who are these characters and why are they doing these things? Because who these characters are is at the crux of Dune. Their personalities, their drives, their ambitions, and the way those things clash and the way those things intersect is very much at the heart of the story in Dune. It, it is really fascinating, and I'm, I'm glad that you didn't try to come up with, you know, do, do the subsystem thing, and you just, you add layers of complexity to something by saying, well, 
you know, we, we need to have wars. We need to have espionage. We need to have interpersonal conflict, but also we need to have social level conflict. Like I hadn't, I hadn't actually put all those variables together with thinking about Dune before that there really are, there's so many levels on which activity has to take place from one to one to planetary scale. And yeah, you, you really have two routes. You either find a way to make yeah. one set of one system do the whole thing, or you end up trying to come up with a bajillion subsystems, which then just clouds the whole thing and, and becomes a headache. That's um, it's there's a dinner party uh, in the first half of the first uh, of the the original novel, um, where the entire thing is almost broken down beat for beat by the different perceptions of these hyper perceptive characters who can discern the smallest details from the tiniest uh, amounts of body language that kind of um, sherlock holmes style mm-hmm. you know hyper deduction um who can use that amongst each other to convey the subtlest of innuendos and using sign language and body language and slight emphasis on different words to convey three different things to three different people with one sentence and that that's a fight. <laughs> There's a fight going on at that table. It's made. It's happening with words, but it's very much a, a conflict mm-hmm. situation that we can't really just brush past with role play, because role play can only get you so far with something where the characters have abilities so far beyond what humans are capable of. Even the most charismatic player, a charismatic player at your table, um, is not capable of the voice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, there needs to be, the, the, and we, we, Chris and I have talked about this. Uh, this has been kind of one of the subtexts of this this podcast in general is that interplay between the story, the setting, and the system. They 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 need to ideally they they play off one another and they support one another. Good role playing is one thing, but you need to have some mechanics to help prop it up and to 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 mm. channel that and to incentivize and to that. Prompt, I think as well. Yeah. Yeah, the 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 system should put in whatever inputs are coming from your role play and using the dice and whatever other rules are used to process those results create a series of outcomes and those outcomes are what you then are what you use to prompt your next role play and so forth and back and forth i've taken for for a, a number of years now taken this view that rpgs exist at the point between or the, the, the point where storytelling and playing a game intersect and you can't quite do it without both the gameplay and the storytelling elements. You can, if you take away the storytelling elements, you've got a game, mm-hmm. and that's fine. That's a thing by itself. You take away the gameplay elements, you've got a story, and that's a sign of itself. And you can do freeform role play, and you can play board games and war games. All of those things are good in their own right. But RPGs, for me, mm-hmm. sit at the point where they intersect, and, yeah. and the product of that intersection has to at least from my perspective the people sitting at the table when you when you feed that piece of story through the the system where the system interacts with the story the Mm -hmm. function the product of that people got to look at it and say that feels right for this setting that that shouldn't 
create an outcome that we look at and we go, that wouldn't happen here. Mm. That doesn't feel I mean, right. that that literal, yeah, looking at the outcomes the game system has given you and going, that doesn't feel right. I mean, that is the literal definition of ludonarrative dissonance. It's a concept that came up in like, computer game criticism um, a number of years back, and it got some flack for being, you know, overly fancy jargon. But I think it describes a very real thing that we see in a lot of RPGs. That moment where the rules go, the, the, the rules say one thing, and your logic and your sense of the story go, hang on a minute, that doesn't make sense. And I find a lot of people see, feel that and then go, well, that's just because the rules don't make sense. We just ignore those rules and they'll get out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> and I would rather see, I, I would rather encourage people and incentivize people to go, well, if the rules don't necessarily don't fit quite what you want to do with them, maybe there are better rules. You mean you don't have to put up with what you're told that you could just, you could make up something different? <laughs> Lovely. <Yeah. I'm> <laughs> We've talked about it. I... Different. If we wanted to make up something different, I'd be out of a job. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm really bad at like, if the rules say one thing, I'll follow it. That's why it's quite funny that actually in the 2D20 games, they do tweak. So I'm like, oh, actually, no, this one does want to work this way better. So this suits me fine. The other problem I have then is though, that when I'm trying to play like a, the wrong version of 2D20 in the wrong game because I forgot what game I'm playing. Like it was, a, I don't think it was, a, it was a really long time before I realized that the spends for buying dice with momentum weren't, this had changed at some point. And me and my mates had just played for ages. Yeah, just that, always doing that a, actually changed, a one-to-one. That changed from, that changed as a result of feedback with Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, we found that because the player characters were a bit more competent overall, uh, because they had fewer skills and thus higher ratings in them and focus was easier to get. Player characters were sometimes running a bit roughshod with um, <laughs> kind of recycling momentum. You'd, you'd get someone that would just buy the maximum number of dice, add three points to heat, buy the max to threat, buy the maximum number of dice um, for any test, doesn't matter which one, um, roll the successes, and then any other momentum they uh, they get after it goes straight back into the momentum pool and they can just keep rolling five dice on everything forever. So we put in a diminishing return yeah. and found that that just worked better. It complicated a few other things on the developmental side. Um, there are a couple of elements that were a, that became a little more complicated for me to write around. But otherwise, it served us really well going forward. Yeah, I certainly just, I didn't notice when I played Star Trek because I was like, oh, some of these other things have changed, but this is the same, surely. And it wasn't until later, I think probably onto another game when I went, oh, oh, that changed. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, my players just, even now when we change it, like playing, say, Fallout or Acting Cthulhu, they will still always just pretty much spend a chunk of heat or threat or doom on getting five dice. But then that means I have a giant stack of poker chips, which uh, yeah. I can use to hit them back. Um I was talking about some of these other games then. So we've got this thing. I'm going to bring it off the thing. Um, so when I've when we've talked about this kind of, I mean, Jeremy calls it his continuum of crunch, and I just called it like the, the spectrum. Um, Acting Cthulhu, we think, kind of just fits straight in the middle of that. We kind of got Mutant Chronicles and Infinity and Conan on one end, and we've got Dune and, and Dishonored on the other end. 
Um, but yeah, Act Cthulhu, we think kind of with Star Trek fits right in the middle of that. Um, so we've got it. So with a new game, which I'm going to mispronounce, that's why you've switched it back to me. Damn it. Cohors. Um, yeah, Cohors. It's Cohors Cthulhu, isn't it? Um, yeah. Is that going to be pretty much the same as Act and Cthulhu, or are you going to make more changes to it, even though, I mean, they're there normally are, named the same? There are subtle changes that have been made based to suit, to suit the circumstances. Um, it's still basically the same system, um, which we tend to think of as our, our baseline um, these days. It was based off an earlier draft of the of our internal SRD, um, though with some other adaptations that I'm feeding back into the newer drafts of it um, these days. But it kind of sits at a, a comfortable point where it's, it's still a fairly traditional game system more with more in common with Mutant Chronicles and Infinity and Conan. But learning some of the lessons that we've uh, we've learned during the development of other games since. Um, Cohors is is built on that same foundation, um, but it's a very different setting because it's nearly 2,000 years before. <laughs> um, so the detail, so some of the details that we emphasize in Acting Cthulhu don't matter. We don't really need to worry about automatic weapons and mortar fire and things like that because nobody's got machine guns. But at the same time, spears and shields and swords and axes, those become much more prevalent. So as with Conan, we adjusted the combat rules to suit that more, that more melee-focused uh, style of play. And I think I previewed on the Discord um, an updated version of the uh, the reach and guard rules from Co- that we, st- we originated in Conan, um, that we've refined and uh, and cleaned up um, a lot because it was somewhat fit. It was always somewhat fiddly, and I was never a hundred percent happy with it. But you know, deadlines hit, so we we stopped with the version we had. Um, so the, we've got this refined version for Cohors to again re-emphasize back on you know your, your characters fighting with swords and spears and such um, to a. And the purpose of that was very much the same reason as the purpose of the the range bands that we've got in our more sci-fi and modern games, where if you've got a long-range weapon, it's really good at a distance. If you've got a short-range weapon, it's really good up close. And you'll want different weapons for different situations. Rather than just this dagger or this pistol is worse, it's this dagger is really good if I can get past someone's defences and um, shank them in the uh, shank them in the, <laughs> the kidneys. Yeah, if I can get up behind someone that doesn't realise I'm there, this knife is far more suitable than that pike. Where yeah, and the same in modern games, the sniper rifle is not the king of weapons. It's really good at really long ranges, but if you're down in the tunnels, down in the trenches, you want a shotgun. And so the reaching guard is kind of that element of. Yeah, you know, kind of an attempt to do that. We've brought it back for cohorts because it suits the the styles of play that we're trying to encourage there. Um, we've also got a whole new set of character creation options created just for cohorts um, to suit the cultures and the archetypes of the era, um, and a few other place the uh, that small playstyle tweaks here and there just to just to make, nudge things in a particular way. It's like. Um, We've got an extra use for fortune um, points in cohorts 
where essentially you can you can force an enemy to count a die as a natural 20 because you've given them the evil eye because cultures in that area were significantly more superstitious. The Romans especially were very superstitious. So here's a way to reflect that. And here's a way to play into the superstitions and the, the beliefs of that era that, that doesn't necessarily need to be present in acting. So in other words, and this isn't related to like magic or anything like that. This is, would it be like your barbarian character's knowledge of like Roman superstition, or is it just like the fact that everyone is, is superstitious? How pretty, pretty much everybody is superstitious in different ways and often in overlapping ways because these cultures bled into one another. And you would have, uh, you know, Celtic and Germanic tribes um, adopting some aspects of Roman culture and Roman religion and vice versa. So it's all this big overlapping gray area, this melange between um, different cultures. And in in game terms, it just suddenly, it just fit really nicely that, okay, someone's a, someone is making a skill test that affects you. You can spend a fortune point to give them mis, you know, to give them misfortune, to give them the evil eye because there are bad omens everywhere. And now one of their dice rolled it counts as rolling a 20 instead of whatever they would normally roll. That's harsh. Oh, that's cool. I like that. It's good that's that it's another example of like, you. Yeah. Just little you, changes you know, like that. Lots of thematic stuff. You know, I kind of thought you, you could have easily just taken out to Cthulhu and just gone and just done nothing to do it. So that's like a whole bunch of little things that you... Uh, that was our starting point, but we went. We then went through yeah. it. Uh, you know, went, the design team that we've got for it is uh, you know, really, really having involved, really knowledgeable about the, uh, about the, those areas of history. Um, we've spent numerous meetings pouring over uh, reconstructed maps of the Roman Empire and comparing them to Google Maps to figure out, okay, where should this location be? And things like that going into far more detail than anybody should reasonably go into um because that's that's where the fun stuff is um so yeah we started with acting cthulhu as the base and then we went back over it a few times to go okay well this bit doesn't work for us here let's pull that bit out and rebuild it here and this bit doesn't work or we need something added here just you know going through and tweaking to fit it's a, it's a very small set of changes and you'll be able to pick up cohorts if you've already learned acting. Uh, yeah, I think we might well. So speaking of new things, this is funny because this is something I've asked you about on possibly on Facebook, but I definitely know I've asked you about this on RPG or rather I've asked the question on RPG.net and then you've popped up and gone, there is an SRD, but it's not my responsibility. I can't deal with this, but I'd really like you to have it, but you can't. Um, and probably on the the forums back, but like before Discord was people were using Discord. So, so look at this. Oh, we've got, regarding the upcoming SRD, so excited that we're finally getting that. Um, will there be commentary from the various designers or something like that that will help GMs adjust the dial on the level of detail and crunch? Um, there we go. Will there be something more like a module of rules going to be assembled into one's own version? Or do you see the SID as being more a presentation of a single version of the rules for the purpose of enabling community creation of resources? So that was two questions and one of them was really long. So we have an existing basic 
SRD um, that was used at the foundation for um, acting and used as a source text for um, Dune and Dishonored and other projects since that before as the basic text before we start making changes. Um, and that's existed for a few years now as an internal document that we occasionally share with licensees and um, people that are partnering with us to work on other things. I mean, Devil's Run um, by, yeah. uh, as, uh, by um, I can't think of the company now. Um, but it's, a, it's the first licensed 2D20 um, RPG. So made without any of our direct involvement. Um, so that existed as our basis. And what I am currently doing um, is going through it and adding in, and in some places adding back in variants and options and guidance on um, different ways to approach the uh, to uh, approach the system to build it for your own game. So the section on characters explains, uh, provides a basic list of here's your stats, and they're the same ones as an act in Cthulhu. Um, here's your skills, and it's a list of six skills as verbs, which I'm pretty sure are the same as the ones in um, Dishonored, um, similar to the ones in Dune. It's a, sh a short list of verbs that just tell that covers the your core actions. We we expanded that for acting. Um, but if you don't want to use those core sets of attributes, here's how you might approach things if you want to do character roles and have, uh, or you're doing D&D style dungeon crawl fantasy, and so your character roles are fighter, mage, cleric, and thief. And everybody has a score in each of those four to represent their different skill sets. Or you're doing a spies-themed game and you've got an infiltrator and a face and a um, and a, a tactical expert and you know different combat roles, similar to the disciplines in Star Trek Adventures. Yeah. Or maybe you want to go with um, something more like the approaches that we used in um, Dishonored or the values from Dune. Or you just want to have one attribute and you pick two from the list um, as with um, John Carter. And just listing off a number of different ways to approach it and in some cases, ways beyond the ones that we've already done in other games as potential suggestions. So one suggestion I put in there for, if you're doing values Dune style, um, maybe you could have the values as bad things, things that you don't want the characters to do that represent the character's flaws. And I, if you, yeah, you, you want to go full, full ham on this, maybe, yeah, it, it, then have seven values and they're named after the seven deadly sins and each time you use your highest value you add to threat as a result or you lose something some other resource that your character has because you're giving in to your worst impulses um that as a possibility and you know different ideas to to build around that and different ways to use focuses and different ways to use skills um, you could have a skill list that's 20 or 30 or yeah, however many entries long, or you distill it down to half a dozen um, and have things very, and have characters be very broadly competent. You can have focuses that are a second score for a skill, or they're a separate rating that's your crit threat range, or they're categories of specialization like in Star Trek Adventures. 
Uh, there are different ways to approach all of these and basically trying to go through and provide players with, as you mentioned, a toolbox to build their own 2D20 system game. Um, the character options there, that's the easy, that's relatively easy. A lot of that is just kind of asking the right, asking questions about who the characters are and building it to that. So when you get into combat and conflict and go, yeah, there are a lot more options here, a lot more ways to build this, including with or without combat dice um, or challenge dice, including um, are you taken out after one injury or are you can you withstand several? Do you have a stress track? Do you spend momentum to avoid injuries? Are the injuries a, spe- a specific fixed penalty or are they just a truth or a trait that gets applied and it's more a narrative how you're injured? You know, those sorts of questions. There's lots of different options there. And that's before we get into kinds of conflict that aren't just normal combat. Is the SRD going to be, do you, do you have any sense of like, what it, is it going to be a physical book? Is it going to be, uh, I, is it going to be a site what, what, or both? What's that? What do you think it's going to be like for the, uh, the consumer? I don't know of any, um, compl- of any conclusive decisions yet. Um, I would have liked to have seen a book. I, I would like to see a book of it um, and have had ideas for that for a while, but I don't necessarily know the, the feasibility of such a project. Um, I want a book. You know, <laughs> I want a kidding. book. Um, <laughs> generic rule books. Uh, generic rule books compared to rule books that have a, a setting. Uh, to, there, there are different production considerations yeah. and um, product considerations there. Um, I know we have looked at um, online options. Um, in a manner similar to uh, a few of the online SRDs that are already out there. The, um, the Forge in the Dark system has a good one. Cortex um, Prime has a really good website kind of uh, with all the, the toolkit options. Uh, and there are a few 2D21, a couple of 2D21s 20 out there that just contain everything. Um, and just looking at those options and seeing what kind of online tools are, feasible for us to produce a lot of it is we'd like to do this now we need to look at it uh, to look at what's feasible for us and the figuring out what's feasible for us is a step that's a little bit outside my um my range i'm involved um i'm involved in those discussions to an extent but a lot of it's that business case stuff yeah um you got to keep the lights on. Um, we understand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If if, uh, if Modifius stops stops being successful, I've got to find a proper job. <laughs> you know, what would be nice. Uh, just throwing this out there into the ether. Because it sounds like this SRD, whatever form it's going to take, is going to be more of a toolbox or tool set, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it would it would be nice that however you. However, you um, you organize, say, like character creation options. Um, if there could be some kind of, if it's online, some kind of, it would be really wonderful to be able to like checkbox, like I want this, I want this, and now I can spit out a PDF that has my version, so I can distribute that to my players. Or lacking that, at least some kind of coding, like here's option one, option two, so I can at least tell my players, I'm going with option one and 
A and B to go on option one, something like that. So it would because once the play, once the GM and the players come together with their version, there has to be some way that that can be communicated. So if there's anything you guys can do on your end to organize it, it's, so that could be done. Yeah, I'm, the the practicality of doing that is it's not something that I could figure out. Um, you know, programming and coding are not. Yeah, you know, my my programming language is English, so. Um, yeah, you know, I can I can build RPG systems. I cannot pro- I cannot program a computer, um, so I don't know how feasible that would be, or what I would need to do with the underlying mechanics to make that more feasible. Or it's a nice idea, and I fully back you on it being a a solid yeah a, 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 a an idea that I would like to see happen, but I don't know how practical it is from the on the technical side of things um yeah speaking of ideas it, would there either be i don't know either like when the sid comes out either blogs that go alongside it or designer notes in it to say along the lines of because obviously you provide this sort of menu of options like the toolbox um but one of the criticisms jeremy had of the of the cortex prime rule book was that they give you this big toolkit but then don't really explain why option a might be better than option b for for game x so is there any consideration to either blogs or or notes in the actual srd that says this is when you might want to there is some of that in the text as at at present um and given that the text is currently being worked on as in i was working on it shortly before uh, we started recording so there yeah there is something of that in the text itself um and additional blogs and additional discussions of that um, can easily come later. I'm not necessarily thinking about what I'm going to be doing with it afterwards, but that's certainly a possibility on the list of things that we could do to, to support going further. Um, at this stage, I'm yeah. The the fact that we've we've managed to set aside some time to work on the SRD and to push ahead with it as a significant project, um, that's been my fo- uh, focus alongside you know working on other uh, supplements for other games and things like that. So, yeah, I, I've got plenty to focus on without thinking too far in <laughs> advance. I'm just really glad it's happening because it's been. A while of like when you when you existed but would we ever get it and then we, we're finally getting it so that was the that was the funny thing with the whole core cthulhu thing it was there was this mm. video that went on for ages and then chris just dropped in a, oh by the way there's an srd coming i was like yeah. i don't care about any of the rest of this that's, that's that's it that's my news the rest of it is like yeah whatever but yeah srd brilliant finally at last i was so happy do you have some sense as to when the srd might be done uh, i i'm churning away at the word mines um try uh, to uh try and get something usable that we can push ahead with um over the next week or so uh because we've got uk games expo beginning of june and that's a good a good point to end projects at so that I can start fresh on something else afterwards um but beyond that uh it would uh, yeah if there's time for for it to go into editing as just the raw text document um you know go through editing and the various legal considerations that go around it for uh license agreements and um how the public can make use of it 
and how people can make use of it if they want to use it in a a a, a professional in a publishing capacity you know if you want to make your own game and just distribute it free online that's one thing if you want to make a game and actually make rule books and print them and sell it that's a different thing and we have to consider all of that stuff and that stuff's a lot a lot of that stuff is way part way outside my area of expertise um you would be better off asking chris uh birch that um though i imagine were you to ask that he would then pass at least some of that question back to me based on when i can get my part of it finished let me ask you this you you you've obviously you know you said you you got into star trek in the early 90s i i, I assume you've been gaming has been a lifelong or near to it, you know, hobby, and you've played a lot of different things. And, you know, we, we, we thank you for the work that you're doing on two die 20. Is there a, is there an IP, an existing IP? Because it seems to be that Modifius is like the, the king of the existing IPs. That's what Modifius does. It goes and vacuums up cool IPs and then spits out good games for them. Is there an IP out there? that you, if you had your druthers, if you had your dream, you'd say, I'm going to be able to make a 2 die 20 variant game for this IP. What, what would it be? Just, just dreaming. I've mentioned this a few times on a couple of forums and on Discord um, uh, and a few other places. Um, I would love the chance to delve into uh, the Mass Effect universe and to, to bring that to the, the tabletop. I think there's so much potential and so many opportunities to do interesting things and tell interesting stories um, in that setting. And I have pondered how I would do it. I know how, you know, various elements of the, the setting and of the, the computer games mechanics, I know how I would translate them across, how I would make them fit into the 2D20 framework. Um, I just can't do anything with that those ideas yet. Not for public and, consumption. Uh, not for public consumption, you know, for my own edification entirely at this point. Um, if the opportunity were to come along, I would leap at it. I would leap upon it. Um, but no such joy for, yeah, you know, at least as far as I'm aware. Um, beyond that, um, I, I'm a big fan of, uh, of superhero media. Um, and I, I, it would be interesting to work on one of yeah on on DC or on Marvel. Uh, I'm not, uh, yeah, I, I I'm I wasn't a hugely impressed by the new Marvel uh, RPG um, playtest that's gone out. You should talk talking. about that. <laughs> yeah, you, you uh, should read my blog if you want to read some really detailed <laughs> breakdowns of the horror show. Um, that, but that I was a huge oh. fan of Marvel Heroic. Um, it's yeah. my, it remains my go-to supers game, and I nearly worked on it uh, back when it was still in production. I was lined up to write for uh, to do uh, character data files for the uh, Age of Apocalypse expansion oh, that they were so that they'd announced. Yeah, um, and then the license got canned. I, I'd signed my oh. NDA. I'd had I'd done my writing sample. I'd I'd handed in. Is it? Doing a, getting a job interview as a, as a writer for an RPG is the most bizarre thing ever. When I when I started writing for FFG way back in 2009, I was sent a series of essay questions about the Warhammer 40,000 universe, <laughs> and those were fun to write. It was just yeah, fairly involved kind of yeah, serious essay questions. 
but about 40k and it was similar <laughs> that my 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 writing sample that i had to submit to um uh mwp of margaret rice productions um who were doing marvel heroic at the time um i had to write out a data uh, a data sheet a, a full character sheet including background info for a character from a short list of characters i can't remember the full short list uh, aside from the one that i did and it was batrock the leaper who may be a fairly obscure character until you realize he was actually adapted he's in captain america winter soldier and falcon yeah. in the winter soldier uh he's the mma uh, guy the the uh, the french mercenary um who fights cap at the start of uh, captain america and the winter soldier um that's obscure he is a he's a much wackier character at least superficially um in the comics yeah. um but yeah i had to write up a full day a full character sheet for him write up his rules right do a write-up of his background just to prove that i could do essentially the job that i would be doing um at least in theory uh for them on the book and yeah so here essentially here is your job interview write up stats for this obscure comic book villain. <laughs> That's hilarious. It's funny you mentioned those two because I think at one point, one of the things I said when I first started my blog 10 years ago, that was one of the things I started, which was doing, was doing Mass Effect hacks. And I think originally I did one for Leverage and then, and then Heroic came out and that's what I did. Yeah. I rewrote all of my Leverage stuff for, for Marvel Heroic. Um, so it's funny that you mentioned those two things because I've literally put those two <laughs> things together yeah. because... Mass Effect is like my favorite. Oh, it's probably my favorite IP. So of my when people are like, what's your favorite computer game? I always say Mass Effect too. Mm-hmm. Um, even if we didn't like when I because I used to play that with my wife. And we didn't actually manage to complete that the first time through no. uh, with with all the crew surviving. Someone died. We made one wrong no, choice I, on, my, the, my on first the playthrough. My first playthrough, I picked the wrong second squad leader. I thought Zaid, with his background as a mercenary leader would be a decent second squad leader. Turns out, no. Um, and thus, Legion got shot in the face. Yeah, I think I had so, uh, the one right. I, I didn't carry a, on with that save. <laughs> I needed a powerful biotic, and I picked Miranda, not not Jack or one of the other ones. <laughs> and so someone died because she didn't protect them. I, yeah. like, I still I always had to dreams of... Because I, I managed to avoid that because I tend to take Miranda in my party because she's got re- her passive squad ability boosts the entire squad's health and damage. So he's a really good like second in command in your squad. Oh, At least Jeremy the has, way that I play. Jeremy has no idea what we're talking <laughs> about. No, I, okay, oh, I this, is, this is going to sound really stupid. This is obviously a video game, right? It's a, sci- yes. it's a science fiction role-playing game. Okay. Yeah, but it was, it, was, it was incredibly in-depth. So even though, I mean, there was only so four games, couple of novels, and that was it because even though they... It's the same company, Bioware, that did Dragon Age. So even though they quite happily licensed Dragon Age to Green Ronin to do a role-playing game, they haven't done the I've same heard, with Mass Effect. From what I've heard, the they licensed out Dragon Age because the design team for Dragon Age at EA Bioware insisted on it. They wanted one to be made. <laughs> um, and that's obviously a big factor because they'll be the ones that have to do the approvals on it. Yeah. Um, so that got that at least as far as I'm aware, that's the that's the rumor that I've heard anyway uh, regarding it. So that got uh, that got additional push from inside uh, Bioware, whereas I don't believe that Mass Effect ever has to on 
on that front. Oh, it's a shame because it is just, it's, it's an amazing property. There is so much there, you know, it's like a, there's a lot which is hinted at in the games, which would make it a massive, big, you know, role-playing universe mm. to go and play in there. And with so many like cool, you know, there are, I mean, they're not, they are kind of classes and, and races mm. and cool gadgets and special powers. And there's so much good stuff there. And uh, we haven't got- You know what, maybe when there. the SRD comes out, we'll see, we'll see clusters of, community members of you know maybe maybe the discord will help in this i think the, the 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 official discord server has been terrific for just discussions about things especially discussions about rules but maybe we'll see this clustering of of people within this the two die 20 community like coming together to say let's let's rough out ideas for you know these these properties that are not officially supported but fans can can build them up and People can use the SRD to kick around ideas and figure out the best way to express that um, that setting. Because I know Chris and I have talked about this tons about supers and how incredibly hard it yeah. is to model, especially high power supers in mm. in a tabletop RPG. You know, who knows what people will will come up with um, when the I've, SRD. I've, I've had my I've had my ideas, but nothing that I've ever done more than you know just scrawled scrawled notes in a notebook at this point. I, yeah. I'd like to. I'd like to take the time to sit down and try and flesh out what I think would work for supers in two D twenty. I definitely think it can work. I think one of the you kind of mentioned it earlier that it, books sell better when they've got a setting and the rules, and then then you have a straightaway. You have this big problem with doing a supers game because you basically have two sets of supers, um, because all right, you, you know, and image exists, but then it's not big yeah so if you're doing it you have to do dc or marvel if you're wanting to attack or you have to make your whole own super or, thing like yeah, you, you, you make your own or you, I, you you can do generic but as supers, obviously things like masks works yeah um, um and it's, you know you're not you're playing with the archetypes of superheroes there rather than um with a specific setting but that there's always the fine line with a lot of licensed games of um are you of how close are you to the the iconic characters of that setting? And lots of superhero games tend to push to often because of license reasons, push towards play as the, the these official characters. You know, Marvel games, play as Spider-Man, play as Iron Man, play as the Hulk, play as Doctor Strange, whatever. And Marvel Heroic was uh, notorious and slightly over-exaggerated for not having character creation rules. It did, it's just yeah. not in the way that people necessarily expected it to, because the the emphasis from Marvel was no, you play as these characters. And I can there's a natural resistance to that in RPGs in general. People want to create their own characters and do their own things. But at the same time, I can kind of see the point of playing with established characters in a superheroes game. In the same way that you get authors, you get writers and artists in comics who clamor to write and draw their favorite characters rather than necessarily you know, creating their own as well. But you, know, you still get people that you know, they want to write Superman, they want to write Batman. And being able to put your own spin on something that's established, there's an appeal to that that's a little bit different. And I don't think gets explored very much in RPGs because we're all used to making our own characters. Yeah. 
Well, I think the DC license is actually free at the moment because I'm pretty sure Green Ronin don't have it anymore. So. I they did. An, they had a very limited run because they only yeah. uh, they they only made four books for it. But I think that was only ever the intention yeah. as a way to relaunch Mutants and Masterminds for third edition. Did a good job. Well, actually, the main thing I've used those for. I don't think I've ever played with those books. I used those books to convert DC characters into Marvel Heroic <laughs> because it gave me a, like a, a bunch of benchmarks. I go, right, mm. that's the Mutant Mastermind stats. This is the MHR stats. This is how I'm doing it. And it made it super easy. So yeah, having those mm. books is really useful, but I never played with them. Let me think back to just the, our discussion of, of 2 day 20 and, and I mean, we, we talked about the SRD. We talked about your dream of Mass Effect. Um, is there anything that is... Uh, I don't know, call it uh, releasable enough that you can tell us about like something interesting coming up or, and I can cut this part out because we're not going to, no, I'm not, I'm not trying to like trip up Nathan <laughs> and like get him to tell a secret or something like that. That's lame. But is there anything cool that you would want to share? Like, Hey, this is something cool. That's co- I, I just to, just to kind of wrap things up. Cause we want to be respectful so, of your time. Because so. Because a lot of the things that uh, that we work on are licenses, uh, we don't really have the freedom to discuss things um, coming up uh, until we've got an approval to uh, to discuss them. So I know of things in the works for uh, Star Trek Adventures and for Fallout uh, that I have worked on um, last year and this year, um, but I can't talk about those yet. Fair. Beyond acknowledging that some work exists somewhere for something. Um, Cohorts Cthulhu has been announced and we've discussed it in a, a, a few ways. Uh, there's plenty more where that came from currently in, de- in development. Um, it has been in development since last year. Um, and then we have something else in development that is in another IP of our own, um, which again, I cannot discuss because it's our own IP. And while we get to decide when we announce it. We haven't decided to announce it yet. But the fact that we know that we, we now know there's something else. Oh, there's something that Modifius is creating in addition to cohorts that's going to be out at some point. That in and of itself is cool. I like that. Because I honestly, I, I think that, you know, I think you guys have, you've done a terrific job with the IPs that you've brought in. But I think Octung is is terrific. And it's, I mean, it's ready for prime. It's ready for Hollywood to make bad movies out of, you know, to take the great mm-hmm. stories that you guys have created and then ruin in the form of movies. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I trust, well, that's what they do. Um, not everything is ruined by Hollywood. You just don't like films. I don't, not anymore. Anyway. Uh, but I, I think that I, yeah, cohorts, I think is gonna be great. And, uh, and so I can name two, uh, Two instances of movies adapted, adapted into books where the movie is better. And what are those? Die Hard, that which was, a, was a novel originally. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, the title is very different. I can't remember what it is. Uh, it's also a sequel to another um, uh, to another novel. They had to change it quite considerably. Um, and um, The Prestige, the Chris Nolan movie. Was that the one with... Um... Uh, Victorian era magicians, Christian Bale and yes, 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 um, and Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman, yeah. yeah. The book really? is the book goes into more detail about a lot of about a number of things, but I found it to be significantly more dry and mm. it, it, it just didn't come across quite as well as the movie did for me. 
Interesting. Yeah, I, I maintain that all the Harry Potter films are better than the Harry Potter books because J.K. Rowling is a is a god awful author, but that's just lost us all our Harry Potter fans. So I, I can live with that. Um, but yeah, you're pretty much right. That generally, but I, st- I enjoy films for films just because okay. films, yeah, right. films can be good. They don't have to, and not every film has to be a work of art. No, that's true. Like Jeremy yeah, seems I mean, to think yeah. that a decent film hasn't come out since the 80s or something, that the last 30 years of cinema right. have been a waste of time. I mean, yeah, the, in the MCU, Captain America Civil War was a significantly better story with Civil War attached than the comic book storyline of the, uh, the same name. Yes, yes, it definitely Same with Age of Ultron, to be, uh, to be fair. Um, uh, <laughs> I'll take your word for it on supers. I am the neophyte in all things okay, supers. You've you, you uh, missed the entirety of the MCU. It's I like did. how... I did. Well, Nathan, thank you so much. Uh, we we really appreciate you giving some time out of your day and willing to uh, to take a risk on these two crackpots from two different parts of the world who who hit you up by email. Um, we appreciate that, and I know that our our listeners are going to appreciate getting some kind of an inside view um, about the system. And I especially think that this episode and, and the, what you've talked about in it is going to be particularly useful. Like when when people get the SR, SRD eventually, they're able to look through it and just start thinking, what mindset and what view do I do I look at these mechanics through to tie them to a uh, um, a setting, either a, a one that they've created or something they're trying to emulate that already exists. I think that's going to be going to be really helpful. So we appreciate it and uh, and thank you, Chris. Is there anything else that you wanted to to add I was, or ask? I was going to just thanks for all the the good work you do on yeah. on the system because like you know I I mean Infinity's still my favorite, but that's because I love the setting more than anything else. But the way that you've taken these rule sets and gone, oh, actually this will work better for Dishonored and this will work like Fallout is just great. Fallout works so well to play Fallout, and we just I had so much fun playing Fallout. Um, and the fact that you, the way that you keep doing these little changes, whether well, not some of them are massive, but um, some just, of them are just so, Fallout, yeah, uh, so a lot impressed. of the a lot of the foundational work on Fallout's changes uh, were done by um, my colleague Sam Webb um, and former colleague. She's moved on to uh, freelance here, pastures, um, uh, Virginia. Um, yeah, who did a lot of the work on Fallout. At, uh, the, yeah, the first few drafts, first few iterations of it, and then brought me in later to polish the yeah to polish some of those details and expand on things in uh, uh, expand on a few areas. So uh, yeah, it's not just me doing the uh, 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 doing the hard work. And thanks for finally getting us at SRD. <laughs> yes, thank you in advance. We appreciate that. That'll be so good. Talking about it with colleagues at UK Games Expo and Dragon Meat for years now. <laughs> nice to get even a few steps closer that's good well again nathan thank you so much for your time and uh and we look forward to this uh we look forward to these publications in the in the future and more uh, more great work from from you and and your team there thanks again for listening and thank you again to nathan for giving us his time and his insights we're going to follow up with him in a few months as some of these things clarify maybe when the srd is out and maybe if our schedules uh come together We'll do a follow-up episode as we get more of those uh, releases. In the meantime, uh, you can track us down on our Facebook page, Fluff and Crunch. Uh, That seems to be probably the best and easiest way to contact us directly. Thank you so much for listening. You can visit our show's homepage at anchor.fm slash 
Fluff and Crunch. That's F-L-U-F-F-N-C-R-U-N-C-H. We would really appreciate feedback and reviews on whatever podcasting platform you're listening to this on. Thanks so much. 